there, and welcome back to Peace in Their Time, episode 127, Gallic Mentality. When the Great Depression got going in continental Europe, it seems strange to say, but France was oddly in a great spot to meet the oncoming crisis, which you might not expect after listening to my coverage on them through the 1920s. After all, it was a nation both insecure over its standing in the world, while also desperate for cash. So much so, they sent Europe into a tizzy by occupying the Ruhr in what was an international shakedown operation. Its political class was badly dysfunctional, opposed to reforms that would see the well-to-do of society sacrifice even a fraction of their wealth and standing, preferring to ride out an economic decline in the first half of the decade by tilting at the German windmill rather than sort themselves out domestically. But as it turned out, the chaos of capital's revolt against the center-left coalition led by Edouard Herriot that ended in July 1926 with the restoration of conservative dominance was the nadir of France's fortunes for the remainder of the decade. The return to power of the center-right national bloc, once again under the leadership of Raymond Poincaré, received both the full support of the nation's business class and the trust of international finance. When that was combined with at least some reparations money starting to trickle in thanks to Germany's American financing, as well as France's elites consenting to tax increases that they never would have accepted from a left-leaning prime minister, the nation's finances were put on stable footing. Also importantly, there were the effects of France going back onto the gold standard. When nations adopted the standard, they had to set the ratio at which their money supply could be converted into gold. For example, the British really shot themselves in the foot by setting the ratio low, meaning that a single pound could be converted into quite a bit of gold. It meant that the pound was considered a strong currency, meaning a valuable store of wealth, but it also deflated the money supply, as fewer pounds could be supported by existing gold reserves. This meant that British goods were more expensive, and foreign buyers became reticent to buy them. France went in the opposite direction and allowed the franc to be valued at a bit less than it could have been, this created an inflationary effect where prices in France were higher, but it was able to export goods more competitively because foreign buyers could get their hands on francs much easier. This gave France an edge over other countries, and post-1926, the economy took off. Like I mentioned back in episode 14, this didn't benefit everyone equally, because of course these things never do, but it did make France the European continent's powerhouse for five years. Foreign buyers lined up for French goods, and the nation's manufacturers, so often regarded as conservative in their operations compared to their Anglo-American and German counterparts, benefited tremendously. Foreign trade in 1929 was two-thirds higher than it had been in 1913, and industrial production was 44% higher. Gold started to be transferred over to Paris, eventually netting France 25% of the entire world's gold reserves, allowing a further expansion of the money supply, which again just made exports from France more attractive. Parisian banking houses became the continent's premier lenders, and the national leadership were keen to use this to their political advantage. Money going out to Central Europe in the form of loans, especially to places like Poland and Romania, carried with them political understandings that those nations should not stray too far from the French orbit. They certainly were forbidden from considering closer relations with Germany. And during the first Hague conference in late 1929, the French leaders made the threat of converting their considerable holdings of British pounds into gold and bringing that bullion across the channel, accelerating what was then the UK's downward monetary spiral. Think of France as a miniature US in this era, a booming economy and a magnet for gold. 
And as I described back in episode 124, the theory of the gold standard to even out everyone's holdings of that precious metal never actually functioned properly, so the US and France benefited while everyone else faced a monetary crisis. What I'm saying is that France was in a better spot economically than almost anyone else under the gold standard. And so, when the Great Depression hit the US, not much immediately happened in France. Business continued as usual, and it was good. The French business class contrasted themselves most favorably with the failing enterprises of the Anglo-American sphere. The growing unemployment lines in the US and UK seemed to demonstrate that, for once, it was French enterprise that was ahead of the curve. And it was a moment of schadenfreude for the French. For generations, they had been looked down upon by other major powers as an also-ran. Their reluctance to pursue maximum profit at any cost had been snidely commented upon by economists from other countries as a block to the nation's full potential. Look at any of the economic rankings of the great powers before World War I, and France was always just behind the movers and shakers, like, again, the Anglo-Americans and the Germans. Respectable, yes, downright impressive on a global scale even, but they weren't the preeminent power that they were in centuries past. The Depression created a brief window where, at the very least, those that had sneered at them would be brought low. But the window of reprieve for the French after 1929 wasn't destined to last forever. A big shield to French industry well into 1931 was the fact that their industries were so competitive during this period and that there was a considerable backlog of orders from their firms. This meant producers still had plenty of work to carry them forward, even as markets were collapsing and buyers started drying up. Another factor delaying the Depression was the fact that France's economy was less complex than, say, the U.S. It didn't have a speculative bubble to deal with, and the conservative nature of its industries meant that businesses were far less overextended when buyers uh, stopped buying. But this just meant that the chance to make preparations for a downturn uh, was largely wasted by a political class that didn't believe that the downturn would spread to them as it had so many of its neighbors. The successor to the elderly Poincaré as prime minister after a brief caretaker government under Briand was André Tardieu. He was a highly intelligent man, and while conservative, was at least open to the prospect of reform. He was, however, an overbearing creature who antagonized everyone around him, which stymied his attempts at even modest actions. He attempted, for example, in 1929, to convince the parliament that the budget surpluses should be used to modernize the nation's infrastructure, a perfectly reasonable and straightforward objective. Also, one that had elements of the center-left radical party's own platform, too bad for Tardieu, the radicals rejected his advances to include them in government, not wishing to work with the man. At the same time, the legislature, which was dominated by the conservative national bloc, uh, turned his proposal down cold. Despite uh, despising the public, uh, Tardieu once claimed public opinion was a harlot that had to be whipped forward, uh, he attempted to take his message of gentle reform directly to the people. The radio addresses, though, didn't budge Parliament. It was a sign he didn't command the same respect as Poincaré, and also that the elites were uninterested in public spending. The excess money on hand, in their view, was better off paying down on the national debt. And it went on this way for years as the rest of the world sunk down into the Depression. The French leaders just sat around twiddling their thumbs, and it appeared to all that the machinery of the Third Republic seemed incapable of action. When the Austrian banking system fell apart, France stood by. When the resulting financial crisis spread to Germany and prompted that nation to request a suspension of its reparations payments, France filibustered until after the German banking system had already collapsed. 
By 1932, the backlogs of industrial orders from abroad had been exhausted, and agricultural prices had cratered just as they had everywhere else. And France's commitment to the gold standard system no longer was working in its favor. The UK and numerous other nations in its economic sphere had jumped ship on the standard, causing its currency to deprecate and its exports to suddenly become all the more competitive. Last week, I talked about how the UK was hit hard by the Depression, but emerged from it faster than many of its neighbors. Well, their gain turned out to be France's loss. While nations like the UK and Japan that had quickly jumped off the standard enjoyed quick recoveries, France's depression lingered deep into the 30s. Again, its political class demonstrated a complete lack of imagination in sticking with the standard, even as the tables turned right in front of them. To them, a depression and a stable franc was better than inflation and a competitive economy. That mindset would last all the way to 1936, and oh boy, it did not do the economy any favors. Now, before I really get into the doom and gloom of France's whole situation, I will be upfront and say it was a milder depression than that suffered by the U.S. or Germany. Their depression is more notable for how long it dragged on, and because its effects inaugurated a new round of political instability that would largely wreck public confidence in the Third Republic. There was mass unemployment, yes, but there were also mitigating factors that managed to keep its effects lighter than elsewhere. The first is that unemployment becomes less of a problem when a significant chunk of your population base is already dead. The losses of World War I had not been made good on by 1932, and to fill gaps in the labor workforce, France turned to migrant labor from their colonies and elsewhere in Europe, especially Italy and Poland. As the United States closed its doors to immigrants in the 1920s, some two million people flocked to France. These workers were almost universally low-skilled factory and farmhands who, despite contributing to France's economic successes between 1926 and 31, were largely kept apart in society. Laws prevented them from obtaining better jobs, and native unions were mistrustful of outsiders, driving down wages by accepting less for their labor. Four-fifths of the migrants were men who had left their families at home, and unlike most migrants to the United States, they had no plans to establish roots in France. Only a quarter of the two million obtained French citizenship before the Depression. And once the economy started to recede, it was time to show the migrants the door. In mass, they were sent back to their countries of origin, which was terribly unfair to them, but great for the French economy. Either their labor was no longer required, or their absence opened up spots for native workers. The other thing working in favor of the French economy was its own backwardness. French agriculture, despite doing terribly as far as making money went, was still productive and could at least support a bunch of people at the subsistence level. They might not have been able to afford manufactured goods in the midst of a terrible market for food prices across the world, but they could still support a bunch of people at a low standard of living. This meant urban workers, many of them scant years removed from living out in the countryside, were able to return to the farms they'd left behind and resume work there. It didn't make people happy by any means. The nation's farms were overflowing with food that just couldn't command a decent price on the market. So while people had food to go around, they didn't have a whole lot else. But it did keep unemployment in some check, which was good given the nation's shaky finances and disinterested leadership. The last silver lining was the empire. It was a closed network where the metropole was favored above all. Agricultural goods of all kinds, ranging from cotton to palm oil to fruits from across Africa, started to be diverted to France instead of markets elsewhere. 
Protective tariffs were thrown up as well to further bind the economies of the colonies to that of France. Those tariffs, combined with naturally uh, lowered prices on account of the Depression, also meant that French manufactured goods became the most affordable options in the colonial markets. After 1931, banks based in France were able to begin lending to businesses out in the colonies as well. Uh, this had previously been restricted to the handful of banks that purely operated in their respective colonies. Money started pouring into Africa in order to develop more infrastructure, which would in turn lead to more productive resource extraction. This was all good for France, as it created a captive market that kept the metropole supplied with goods that would otherwise have to be purchased in markets France was increasingly uncompetitive in, which would have created trade deficits at a time when the state was especially looking to avoid those. In addition, the new focus on the empire created investment opportunities while the metropole itself was stagnating. This was all decidedly bad for the people out in the colonies, though, as the attentions of the French state bore more heavily down on them. This all meant higher taxes, increased expectations for delivering raw materials, more forced labor, and their local infrastructure was developed to better deliver goods, not service the people actually living there. Which was par for the course already, but it's important to note what increased investment actually meant. Okay, so that's the good news for France. I guess. Doesn't seem that great, but whatever. The bad news was that all of those factors just softened a crash landing. Work became scarce, unemployment became a greater weight than the public treasury could safely bear, and the resources that the state had to work with shriveled up. But even staring depression in the face, not even the National Bloc's opponents could accept reality and abandon the gold standard. During the May 1932 legislative elections, Edouard Herriot and the radicals took advantage of worsening conditions and led a coalition of leftist parties to victory, forming a second cartel de gauche. Big problem, the socialists didn't want to be as marginalized as they were in the first go-around back in 1924 and refused to join with the radicals when it came time to actually form a government. The problem arose over disagreements over how to handle the economic crisis. The radicals wanted to implement an austerity regime and balance the budget. The socialists wanted to do the exact opposite and focus on government spending and controls to alleviate poverty. The two camps on the left refused to reconcile, but Herriot and the radicals couldn't simply throw in with Dardieu and the center-right after having run on a left platform. The result was chaos at the highest levels of government. In a year and a half, there would be seven prime ministers as successive governments fell due to infighting. The radicals at certain points did drop their inhibitions and did cast about for the center-right to aid them. After all, they were proposing economic policies in line with the center-right, but the conservative section of the legislature preferred to stand aside and let the radicals and the left in general just flounder along. The chaos was such that funds could not be arranged to pay on France's World War I debts to the U.S. In December 1932, the scheduled payment was missed and the loans were defaulted upon. This turned out to have far-reaching consequences. It's also really frustrating in retrospect, because so much of the anguish and diplomatic hang-ups of the 1920s was that the U.S. was owed a lot of money by its former allies, and the U.S. government didn't want to do anything to relieve them of the burden, which in the case of France led that nation to go especially hard on Germany to pay reparations to them, as they desperately needed money themselves to pay back the Americans. This was a dominant storyline in Europe through all of season one, and a major reason why diplomacy there was always on the verge of breaking down. All of a sudden, this was no longer a priority. 
For just a little additional context, how this was justified was that back in 1931, U.S. President Herbert Hoover instituted a one-year moratorium on both war debt and reparations payments to provide some relief in the midst of the Depression. This meant Germany was off the hook to France, but this was more than compensated by France not having to pay the United States. The problem was that Hoover was only willing to go for a year, and at that time the world economy went from bad to worse. Germany was unable to resume reparations payments, and the UK and France weren't keen on keeping up with their loans to the US. This resulted in the Lausanne Conference that was held from June 16th to July 9th of 1932. With the Hoover moratorium set to expire, the UK, France, and Germany met to try and replace the now hopelessly unrealistic Young Plan with a far-reaching strategy to wind down the debts of each nation. Germany would pay a final installment of 3 billion marks and consider its reparations paid. France and the UK would then have to go to the Americans and arrange for a final write-down on their own loans. And oh boy, that last part was the kicker. Hoover was in no mood to permanently write off European debts to the U.S., and he wasn't going to convince Congress to delay payments any longer. Public opinion across Europe was not thrilled with the greed of the Americans as the whole world fell apart around them. When the time came for France to make its latest payment in December, it was speculated that Herriot used the occasion of requesting the money from Parliament as grounds to resign gracefully from the prime ministership and abandoned what was becoming an increasingly impossible political situation. Because the mood of the French Parliament was such that they, of course, rejected the request. There simply wasn't any money left in the budget, which led to Herriot's resignation and a new government to be formed. And at first, not a whole lot happened. Everything was going to hell in a handbasket by the end of 1932, and the U.S. was not in a position to take firm action. Oh, the Americans complained about it, of course, but the French retorted that the Smoot-Hawley tariff bill had demonstrated that, from the perspective of the U.S., it was every nation for itself. Which, hey, that's fair. A response did come later, though, and it kind of bit everybody in the ass. In April 1934, the U.S. Congress passed the Johnson Debt Default Act, which straightforwardly prohibited lending from U.S. institutions to foreign governments that had debt they refused to pay back. This effectively closed off American financial markets, not just to France, but the UK as well. In the short term, this meant that the markets and governments of those two nations couldn't take advantage of American financing, which contributed to an ongoing liquidity crisis across the world. More long term, though, what it meant was that when it came time for rearmament later in the 30s, they couldn't take advantage of American financing. Which, don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that that would have been the remedy to what went down in the spring of 1940, but it did not help at all. Anyway, so France was going it alone economically. Unfortunately, its leaders were still committed to the gold standard and refused to devalue the franc. Their answer was the same as most everybody else in the period, which was throwing up protective tariffs. If they made imports too expensive, both at home and the colonies, then they'd at least encourage domestic production. There were carve-outs and exceptions to the tariffs, of course. France allowed for favorable terms on goods coming from their Central European allies, but otherwise, the French assembled an economic fortress. The problem was that an already depressed internal market really wasn't the best environment to foster a recovery, and the tariffs did precious little but staunch the bleeding. All the while, the radicals kept trying to force through austerity measures, which included cuts to social spending and slashing the payroll to public employees. None of this was popular, and it set the stage for a spasm of anti-government outrage coming from the right. French politicians always had a problem with keeping corrupt relationships with the business class, 
and as I covered last season, politics and business were joined at the hip. In December 1933, an affair came to light involving a Polish-Jewish immigrant. His name was Aleksandr Stavisky, and for years he drifted from job to job before settling down operating municipal pawn shops in the city of Bayonne, not far from France's border with Spain on the Atlantic coast. Municipal meaning that the pawn shops were enfranchised, so to speak, by the city. He was always running one scam or another, but got in way over his head when he issued millions of francs worth of phony bonds. He was sure to be arrested and fled to the French Alps to try and hide out. Or something, I'm not really sure, because he wound up shooting himself in the chalet he was staying at. Or maybe he was murdered, that doesn't matter. What did matter was a number of government ministers were found to have financial connections to him. The result of which was another collapsed government. A new radical-led cabinet under Edouard de Ladier tried to establish itself in late January 1934, but the conservatives and general anti-government groups in the nation saw their chance to move. De Ladier had already had a stint as prime minister in the maelstrom of the past year and a half, and is going to be more important down the road, but he is just going to be a passenger to larger events for right now. The Stavisky affair was overall small potatoes, but societal tensions and government inaction had reached such a boiling point that it became a rallying cry. The 1920s had seen the growth of political discontent in the Third Republic, and I don't just mean discontent at tired and paid-for politicians ignoring the public good. People were getting tired of the Republic in general. This was especially dangerous in the environment of the 1930s, as by that time there were plenty of foreign anti-democratic examples to emulate. The most visible expression of right-wing outrage was the formation of the Leagues. These were mostly composed of veterans who favored a more authoritarian approach to public life, in the name of curing the ills that beset the nation. The Leagues had been somewhat influenced during the 1920s by the Nonconformist Movement, which was an amorphous school of thought that sought an alternative to the politics of the Republic. After all, it appeared that politicians of all kinds were bought and paid for and ignored the public good which, to be fair, was mostly correct. The nonconformists claimed to be neither right nor left, but rather favored populist, communal decision-making. This appealed to many of the leagues, at least during the boom times of the 20s, but once the nation went into crisis, these groups swung firmly into traditional hard-right territory, because that's what they always do when actually under pressure. The leagues turned to street protests and hooliganism to get their point across in the Depression years, and became most active when the radicals came to power. The Stavisky affair proved to be the signal for them to make their move. On the evening of February 6th, 1934, various leagues from across Paris got together along the Seine River, on the side opposite to the Parliament building. A riot broke out, and the police fired into the crowd, killing 16 people and injuring 2,000. Off kind of doing their own thing, though, was the most notable of the leagues, the Croix de Faux, or the CF for short. Their group of 2,000 were more enterprising and crossed the river before the riot broke out, surrounding the Parliament building. The leader of the CF was one Colonel Francois de la Rosquet. La Rosquet declined to storm the building, and yes, the representatives were present inside, with the two wings bickering over whether Deladier's government should resign. While the radicals held firm that evening, and La Rosquet was pilloried in the right-wing press for not storming the building, Deladier did resign days later, and the CF saw an explosion in popularity, rising from 40,000 overall members to 400,000 in two years' time. This set off a panic on the left. 
the appearance of the street-fighting leagues convinced them that France, too, was on the road to fascism. Keep in mind that the Italian fascists had led with similar street violence, albeit on a much grander scale, and by early 1934, the Nazi regime was well-established, thanks in no small part to the visibility and intimidation value of its brown shirts. On February 12th, a general strike was called not to make any new demands, but rather to send a message that France's democracy would not go the way of its eastern neighbors. The communists, too, got serious and pushed for a real alliance on the left between them and the socialists, with the radicals being expected to fall into line on the next go-round when they were in power. For those familiar with French political history in the interwar years, this would lead to the most notable government configuration of the period, the Popular Front. But that wouldn't be until 1936, and France had a long road of enduring two more years of status quo politics. That is, status quo politics with the dangerous addition of ruling by decree. The incoming government after the February 6th riots was led by a conservative radical named Gaston Domergue who asked for the extraordinary powers of issuing laws by decree, similar to ones adopted by Hitler in Germany the year previous. The difference here was Domergue used these powers to bypass parliament in order to slash government spending, and not much else. A half year later, and with no progress in the economy having been made, he tried to propose constitutional changes to allow the president to call for new legislative elections in the event that a government fell. Part of that was to stop the constant collapse of governments by actually attaching consequences to the event, and partially it was to empower the president at the expense of an unruly parliament, which might have appealed to Domergue, as he had served as president for seven years himself. Parliament understandably didn't go for it, and he resigned as well. His exit signaled the end of any semblance of government from the radicals, and after that it was the conservatives who took over in his place. And I could go on, after all, the Depression in France continued for years afterwards. But by 1934, the new patterns of life were well established. The politicians refused to allow the franc to lose value out of fear of returning to the inflation years of the early 1920s, and as such, growth in the country remained flat. All through the past 15 years, dissatisfaction with this type of leadership had been building, and thanks to the awful economy, the nation had become politically polarized. The tepid moves since 1929 that focused only on slashing spending and not a whole lot else were not taken very well by the public. And this was the biggest effect of the Depression in France, completely undermining the Republic and making vast segments of the population stop identifying with it. What entered that void were increasingly radicalized groups on the left and right who sought out power not to stabilize the Republic, but reshape it totally in an image they believe would work better. More so than any other nation entering the dark days of the later 1930s, France was a nation divided against itself. And I'll be picking up their story with the rise and fall of the Popular Front later on in the season. But for now, the Depression years roll on, and next week I'll be stopping over in Italy and seeing how the fascists were handling the crisis. Join me then, and as always, thank you very much for listening.